Today is Sunday, January 24th, 2016. This is Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio, and I am Larry H. Russell. Today's show is being brought to you by AmericanFarmersNetwork.com and TickIQ. We're going to roll right into it because our guest is with us at this very moment. Brief announcement regarding the ticket giveaways. We are announcing the winner to the Clippers tickets on this show next week. So still plenty of time to enter to win tickets to that game. Many other games as well. Check out all the details on Facebook.com slash Celtics Beat. Contest details go through February. We'll still be giving away games in March and April. We just have not gotten around there yet. If you do want a little more information, definitely feel free to hit me up personally. Email, Twitter, at CLNS underscore LHR. But yes, ticket giveaways ongoing check out our facebook page at facebook.com slash celtics beat this past week for the celtics a little bit of the same old song and dance got the game back on friday against chicago to stay over that 500 threshold and remain in the playoff picture in the east the game that was supposed to be played last night moved to seven o'clock tonight in philadelphia i'm sure that is going to be a game that is going to shatter the nielsen ratings correct uh yeah i i know i will get around to it personally while i can but yes, another come see, come saw week. As stated, a lot of the same olds here. Definitely another week where the needle wasn't really moved in either direction. Feeling a bit frustrated as a fan. Love to hear your take, particularly this week in the Facebook group, because I don't have time to do that on this week's show. Because right here, right now, is the one and only Bob Ryan, columnist emeritus for the Boston Globe, ESPN commentator, and of course, author of Scribe, My Life in Sports, and many other great books for that matter. So let's get rolling here. Let's do this. Our interview with Bob is brought to you by AmericanFarmersNetwork.com. Is your New Year's resolution, like those of many, to lose the weight and get healthy? Well, you cannot do that without a clean diet, and science is now spoken. 100% certified organic, grass-fed beef is one of the most nutritional options out there. Let AmericanFarmersNetwork.com provide the staples to your path to effortless weight loss and optimal health with the array of pasture-raised and certified organic meat. AFN's animals are raised, cared for, ranched, and harvested on small family farms, not corporate-sponsored industrial factories. Do not listen to faux science regarding meat and stop consuming animals that were likely infested with antibiotics, growth hormones, or grain-fed diets. Humane lifestyles for the animal mean an even more healthy lifestyle for you. And that is why AFN's animals ate right so you could too. Log on to AmericanFarmersNetwork.com and begin or continue your journey to peak physical fitness today. Bob, first off, welcome back to Celtics Beat. As I said to open up, do not know if it's the January doldrums for me. But right now, coming into the season, at the very least, we all want to see the team improve. And on this Sunday, January 24th, 2016, so far, because there has not been much improvement, and definitely not from a team standpoint, there seems to be minimal progress here. Because of that, I got to say, I am bored at this very moment, so I got you here. Talk me out of said boredom. Well, they're not boring to me. They're, they're exasperating from a parental viewpoint. Uh, I, I view them as my talented offspring who don't always bring their A game, uh, and, and they need to bring their A game to compete 
Uh, the funny part of it is, though, that they seem to play to the level of the competition. That's always the disturbing quality in any sports team when a good team, and they're good. They're not great. They can't be great yet. They need more stuff. We all know that. But they can be good. They can be a playoff team. They can be an annoying team that could win a playoff series. Yes, but they, but they have blown games at home, this, this awful stretch when the schedule seems set up, and here come the Lakers and they lose. And here come, and, I mean, it just names lost at home that were just, just annoying. And and we know how good they can be. They turn around and they wallop uh, a team. With they they should wallop when Phoenix came in and they they toyed with them. This is what they should have done with the Sixers. All right, and with and with the um, the Lakers. Excuse me. Okay. Uh, so that we get back to your point uh, about a board with them. I don't think it's boring, but boy, they're frustrating. Uh, and and it's a, there's a collective immaturity that sets in. I think that's what happened in that stretch. Uh, remember, the, the, what do they have for veteran leadership? The closest thing they have is Amir Johnson, who's, who's a 10-year veteran at age 28, being a high school uh, kid. Um, and they don't have uh, anyone to turn to yet, and uh, with that, and and um, it's uh, and remember they still have a young coach, although he's uh, I'm extremely high on Brad Stevens. I think he's one of the great, he is the greatest asset in the organization. But um, I I uh, I just think it comes back uh, to the maturity factor, the collective uh, team maturity, and right now they still don't have what they need. I've been harping on that as well, especially. If that is how you want to put it as, a lack of maturity, or not mentally tough enough, or whatever. But that's really what has agitated me over the course of the last three weeks here, Bob. Particularly as you mentioned since that stretch when we all thought the Celts would go on that run after the schedule. Starting with the Lakers loss, the Nets loss. But yes, that lack of maturity. What's really bothered me is you have yet to see this team win a game ugly. And we're more than halfway through the season here. You mentioned how they always need to bring their A game, but I don't like how they can't win a game unless they bring their A game. They can't grit out a win with a B-minus effort or a C game. And while it isn't ideal, it's part of the necessary evolution we want to see. And I also believe that that lack of maturity you mentioned, or however you want to describe it, I've talked a lot about it in recent weeks how this team does not operate well in adverse circumstances. And, of course, I would say that's certainly proof of what you just said over the last few minutes or so. And I mentioned that to Brian Scalabrini, that, in my eyes, I don't think this team really does well in quote-unquote tough or clutch situations or just when things aren't going well. I mentioned it to Brian on the show a few weeks ago, which, if listeners want to check out, that's in our archives if you search Celtics Beat on iTunes or Stitcher. But it was not until the Celtics beat the Wizards last Saturday night, January 16th, 2016, the Celtics have won one game all year where they did not possess a double-digit lead-in. I credit Brian Scalabrini for that stat, and that is a number that is absolutely flabbergasting to me. But that's an astonishing uh, uh, number. It really is. It truly is. Uh, but there was a funny game. There was a game back, uh, you know, in, in January when um, uh, they're, they're dead in the water late in the game and they get steals and four straight, uh, you know, make four steals. Four steals off the Pacers and go out and score baskets uh, to win the game. And one going away with a 12-0 run. You know, you say to yourself, where does that come from? Uh, see, they're, they're capable. They're capable. They've got to play a certain way. It's got to be a togetherness. Um, that, that night I alluded to when they, when they pounded the Suns, there were seven guys in double figures, and, 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 and the box score was a beautiful thing to behold. And, and they, they have enough players that some night it's theoretically possible this team could have ten guys in double figures because they have no useless players. I mean, most, they really don't, which is, of course, 
getting back to the the whole core issue with this team, which I think many people foresaw before the season started, that it would be an extremely difficult team for Brad Stevens to coach because of the parity factor, that you would be second-guessing yourself endlessly about who should play and how long somebody should play and who's in the rotation. In fact, uh, as, as I speak, there has never been anything resembling a rotation. Uh, and and that, I'm not, that's not an indictment of the coach. He can't be faulted for that unless he makes a very hard decision. All right, that's it. The next eight, six, eight games, I'm going with a certain eight-man rotation, and that's that. I'm going to live and die with it. We're going to see how that goes. But he hasn't got. But that, that that's a bold and, and almost a foolhardy approach with this team. You, right now, I think you got to play it the way he does, which is keep searching for his combinations so that on that particular night uh, fit that particular circumstance. It was making him really tough to search for those certain uh, scenarios. And it's funny though, me and you are the ones who were really had real quells over how this team would perform with such a. Not, not a mediocre roster, but none of the players with the ability to separate themselves. But we are more than halfway into the season. Seems like Avery Bradley has been the only guy to show really any improvement from from a year to year. Does it bother you that no one has really shown improvement, not just over the course of this year, but maybe from last year to the year prior? And because of that, that's really not allowing any of these players to separate themselves and give Brad Stevens you know, a better chance of being able to sort this roster out for his sake. I would add Olenek to that. I mean, I think Olenek is closer to uh, what we thought he could be than he was uh, two years ago or at the beginning of last year or the middle of last year. So I'd, I'd add Olenek to that myself. I mean, because I'm very biased. I've loved him from the start. I, I still think that the best asset, uh, an asset of his that has is, that is got to be more further exploited is his passing ability. I love big passing big men. And, and they've, they've got the potential for a nice passing uh, team, I think. But I, I would throw him in there. And, and, of course, I'm always hoping that we're going to see the, the, the next step, if you will, for Marcus Smart. And he was set back big time by the injury, and I think we may have to be really, really, really patient. It's going to happen. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. He's going to turn the corner. He's going to become a major player in this league. I really believe that. There's just too much going for him, including intelligence. So, uh, anyway, um, but you're, uh, that, that – that's a fair, but I think a fair point. Except I would add on it. Guarding smart, though, that was that was good that you brought that up because you're already actually starting to see fans get a little frustrated in his lack of development, even though it has only been a year and a half. And it's funny, the same fans that are agitated at his lack of development are the same ones that sort of look back and say, "Boy, I can't believe Rick Pitino traded Chauncey Billups after 50 games." But I'm with <laughs> you too on smart there because he seems like a guy who's so. T- just he really seems committed to the game that he's one that would make the necessary improvements that you need to make during off seasons. You look at all the young players that really have fizzled out for the Celtics over the years. It's because they really didn't have the commitment off the court. Antoine Walker never added to his game off the court. I would say Rajon Rondo really did not add much to his repertoire during his time here. I'd like to think that Smart, being as competitive as he is, is going to take those off-seasons seriously enough because that's where you do make those improvements to come back as a very good player in the league. Yes, and I want to throw another guy in there that I'm going to never give up on until I give up on him. Now, that sounds like a Yogi Berryism, doesn't it? But, I mean, I'm going to go a long, long way before I give up, and that's Sullinger. I am so annoyed sometimes. He can be so good. He has such talent in terms of rebounding, and, and his hands are good. It's, he knows the game. He's the son of a coach. He reflects that sometimes, and yet there are, there are just – uh, I, I, it's not there every night. Uh, you know, he, he, he's been in and out, uh, and, and I deservedly so in and out of, of, of favor, if you will. Uh, I, I really 
just want him to I, – I know he supposedly made a commitment this past offseason. I just don't know if he's ever made the full commitment. He may be too smart for his own good. I don't know. He may, I, think he's I don't know advice. what it is. I don't know what it is, but uh, but he can. There's there's an un, there still is an unreached potential there, and 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 I think he can be a a, 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 a significant player in this league. Uh, uh, and right now he's occasionally one, and I think he can be one more often. I think it just comes down to him getting bad advice because from what we've read from his offseason program, the guy was working out ten hours a day, which I think is utterly ludicrous to be working well, out that crazy, much. Right? I mean, that's you're getting poor advice. And you mentioned why he's not there for the Celtics every night. He's not there for the Celtics every night because he can't. He's useless in back-to-backs. He's just not physically fit enough to, you know, bring it. I mean, there are some nights he still has a tremendously high basketball IQ, especially nowadays. And he that's really the only thing I think that's sort of keeping him in the league or at least keeping, keeping him in an NBA rotation. Because, I mean, you're right. It is frustrating with him. You haven't given up on him. I have. I think he's never really going to figure it out or never going to get around the right people that can point him in the right direction. I think even that you can say the Celtics are doing a little bit of him a disservice, just sort of saying, no, you got to get yourself in shape when I think at the end of the day he's their investment. But I just, here we are four years into the league. He doesn't really seem to be going in the right direction in terms of getting the appropriate knowledge to be able to maximize physical output of his body. And therefore, I mean, I just don't see that changing in the near future. Okay, well, we're going to have to just table that one, and I, I still have hopes, I guess, because I can see what the potential is, and, and, and I, I see, you know, the great parallel I thought of for him, that I, I like to lock him in a room with this guy for six hours or, or a day or a week, or, and Paul maybe Silas. Uh, somehow... It's Paul Silas. Paul Silas was was at a crossroads back in 1970 when uh, he was just a big guy pounding people, but was not. Take, he was too heavy. He got and he made a commitment, and he became the great Paul Silas that that was the cornerstone of a, of a four-year run at and Celtics. Uh, and he was a great player. Uh, and Salinger's intelligent, and Silas, of course, highly intelligent. I just uh, think that's a parallel I, I, that I go. But anyway, it hasn't happened yet, uh, and maybe, uh, you know, you, you're, you're probably more, you probably are being more pragmatic about it. I'm, I'm being a little more romantic about it. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm totally with you in terms of his talent. I think it's there. It's just, once again, I think health-wise, I don't think it's ever going to work for him. And that's actually probably the only one concern that I have with Marcus Smart is also health-wise. I think the biggest improvement he can make because I'm all, I'm just sort of assuming that he's going to bust his butt off in off seasons. I just think that here we are now a year and a half in his career and he's missed so much time in just a year and a half for uh, a 19, a 20, and a 21-year-old. That, that, that does bother me that when you're that young and you're that prone to injury that comes up because, I mean, what's going to happen when you're 25, 26, let alone 28, 29? Any concern at all with fan agitation over the fact that while the season is sort of going as I would say you and I expect before the season, I think a lot of us had the team pegged at around 43 wins. That's pretty much what they're estimated to finish at. But because that this team has reached a plateau a little bit here, do you think that's a little troublesome in the minds of fans? And could that be an issue in the fact that they're Poss- I don't want to say there could be fan backlash, but I mean, just sort of a little irritation amongst the fan base. Well, there's often a disconnect uh, between the uh, media expectations and, and the fan expectations, and sometimes it's 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 uh, uh, it's huge. I, I I don't think it's enormous. 
here. I, and I say, I don't know who, I don't know this fan base. You know, I knew the ones in the 60s and 70s and 80s and, and 90s and I, uh, and, and what, what their, why they come, uh, what their, what their purpose and, you know, athletic viewing life is. I'm serious. I don't know uh, what they come for. Uh, uh, it seems, uh, I'm baffled a little bit at how well the fan base has held up during uh, in the, some of the off periods in their, in their recent, recent history. So I, I don't know what they uh, want out of this. So the night out uh, thing uh, as opposed to the NBA thing, uh, seeing the stars on the other team, I have no idea. I don't know. I'd love to have a survey. Uh, so I really can't. I'm, I'm not answering your question because I can't answer your question. Uh, I really don't know. But I'm, I'm fascinated by, by the, the um, evolution of the fan, uh, the NBA fan, uh, frankly. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, my, my, I'm just going to throw this out as a complete aside. It has nothing to do with your question. But, I mean, it, this is what I don't understand. It seems to me that um, an astonishing percentage, and I mean anywhere from 75 and up, of people, I'd say, 20 or maybe, yeah, or younger who attend games, which is a lot of people, it seems to me that the only reason they come is to get to see themselves on the Jumbotron. And that if you were to take an exit quiz on the way out, who just played and who just won, a lot of them would flunk both questions on that pass-fail basis. Now, do you remotely agree with me, or am I just way out there? No, I, I completely agree with you, and I not, not for the sake of really throwing this conversation way off. It's really what has frustrated me mostly when it comes to NBA games. I have season tickets to the Celtics. I don't really use them as much anymore, largely because I believe the production is geared for sort of the lowest common denominator portion of fan bases. When you hear some of the quote-unquote old-time fans, and I really don't consider myself an old-time fan. I'm 29 years old. But when you see you know, the Jumbotron, the dancers, the obnoxiously loud music at games— it's just like, I mean, what is this? And it's it's geared, and whenever you have conversations with people in the organization about this, when you say, you know, Jesus, you know, back not even 20 years ago, they weren't doing this at when the Fleet Center first opened up or at the Old Garden. What is it for now? It's like, well, you know, we, we know we're going to have guys like you. We just need to win over certain portions of the fan base. And when I say that, it's, I mean, yes, the Celtics tradition is great, but it's not even about the mystique. It's not even about the tradition. It's not even about red. It's not even about the paquet. It's that this stuff is geared for, as I said, lowest common denominator portions of the population. And anyone who I think has any sort of any intellect whatsoever, it's sort of insulting that that's the way that NBA teams, not just the Celtics, feel the need to amuse people who attend games. They all they all feel that way. It's universal. Celtics actually were one of the last holdouts. Oh, they were the last to, to plug last. into everything, including the last to have a dance team, which of course didn't happen until Red died the day after. And he never had to see it. And um, it's interesting. Yes, you're right. And here's where the proof that how, how crazy it is and how just frustrating it is for you and me. And uh, we're separated by many years. And that is that uh, uh, in common sense, you would would tell you if, if in a saner world if the if the game it's the game was what mattered and not the spectacle that once you got to the playoffs all that stuff would cease now you don't need anything just the game you don't need that in a playoffs in any of the nba arenas once the playoffs start you would think, theoretically think that all the noise and bombast and all the all the crap and all those all the extra stuff would cease and we would concentrate on basketball but of course we all know that is not the case right up to the seventh game of an nba final so anyway um that's reality. 
And to answer your question, people have been pretty patient, I think, and, and, and I think they're hanging in with this team, and they give them just enough to tease them, uh, you know, and, and, and I think I, I'm totally confident they're going to win that, those 43 or, or even more uh, and, and, and give them a playoff series and, and give them a good one. I, I, I do believe that. I'm with you there, too. Got to touch upon this, though, because we had Skip Param on last week's show, and I know you're very well connected with this team. The infamous 1986 Boston Celtics. Got to state this, obviously, in your book, Scribe, My Life in Sports. Still available at local bookstores in both hardcover and paperback. Believe you use the phrase, if my memory does serve me correctly, that you described that Celtics team in 1986. Their best would be anyone else's best. So I got to give you the floor, obviously. You can read more about it in your book, Scribe, but... If you want to further elaborate on here on Celtics B. Yes, yes. Um, when the discussion turns to the greatest single-season teams of all time, uh, I vote for this team. And, and my trump card uh, is that n- uh, there never was a team, uh, including a Celtics team, uh, that uh, ever brought anything remotely resembling a healthy Bill Walton off the bench. And if you saw that season unfold and saw the way games changed, and then uh, when he came in, and then saw what happened on the floor with he and Bird, a, par- a duo unlike any other that ever played together in the history of this game on the same team. Uh, and, and their, their innate chemistry uh, was, was so out there and just so completely uh, beyond anything that any duos that you'd ever seen in the league, uh, big man particularly. Um, I, I just think, and I, they could beat you any way you needed to. They could outrun you. They could out uh, uh, defend you. They could they could play half court. My God, half court! Uh, but, but people don't know how well they could run. They could run. Uh, uh, they oh my God, yeah. Uh, they had uh, and then they had, but they had the kind of specialists that that uh, are, are uh, game changing. Jerry Seasting, for example, shot sixty five percent from the floor in the final 17 games of the regular season. And if you know Jerry Seasting's game, you know that included among uh, all his baskets of, of those 65% made shots were probably two layups. It was nothing but relentless mid-range jump shots. Uh, it, so here's a weapon coming off the bench to help change games. Uh, they had a guy, David Thurkill, could come off and guard somebody. And people don't know uh, that, that he actually played a role in that team. But uh, among the – Scott Wedman was a, you know, an, an appendage. Scott Wedman was an all-star. 18-3 and three that year without McHale. McHale got hurt around the All-Star time, and then he did the curious thing of playing in the All-Star game and going back on it and not playing, but, uh, which was a, a, a thing Carmelo Anthony got criticized for, uh, but McHale did it first. Uh, yeah, he got hurt. Wedman went 18-3 with Wedman. And then when, in the finals and in the playoffs, Wedman got hurt and uh, wasn't pl- able to play, and uh, that just meant more time, for, frankly, for Larry and, and, uh, and, and moving Larry around, including basically in a, in a, in a quasi-backcourt role for a time against the Bucks. They just had so much going for them. And, and then at the peak, the greatest front court of all time, uh, of course, was Parrish and McHale. And then the great extra added that the final little cherry on the Sunday that, that, that was that Danny Ainge came of age in game two, the Michael Jordan 63-point game. Danny Ainge had a huge game with a huge second half in overtimes, and, and that was his light bulb moment, and he became a really, really, really outstanding player from that point on for the rest of his career. And uh, it's it just... You know, I mean, we could go on individually. A DJ, there was nobody ever quite like him. Uh, as 
true of all great players. The, what they leave for you more than numbers are um, uh, a mark on the game, a, a style, an a, a image. And, and then DJ was a sui generis player. So I just think it's the best. I, and I also think, uh, Larry, that uh, the, the, the other team that I uh, admire uh, at that peak was in 60, 87 Lakers the next year. And at that, I always say the greatest series that never was was the 86 Celtics versus the 87 Lakers. And I, I don't have the slightest doubt that either of them wipe out any of the Bulls teams, including the one that won 72 in, in six games or fewer. And um, I just think that the greatest team of all time is the 85-86 Celtics. And I fully recognize that I will be viewed as a complete hopeless parochial, uh, you know, a homer uh, by people who outside of Boston. That's understandable. I'm sure Philadelphia writers are saying that the greatest team of all time was the 66-67-76ers. And I'm sure uh, Nick fans think it was 70-70-69-70 Knicks, and I think, et cetera, et cetera. But I'll tell you a team that never got a chance to fulfill its potential. And we'll never know how much it would have been. The 87 Celtics. Nope. The, the uh, Trailblazers. The Trailblazers. The Trailblazers. Of, of the, the year after they won the championship. They won 48 oh, games. The right, when Walton got hurt. The year, the year after they won the championship, yeah, they hurt. won by winning 48 games in the regular season. They, won, they were 50-10 and 10 when the injuries struck. And by the time the playoffs were concluded, they had lost four-fifths of their original starting lineup, including the most important component, Bill Walton. If that team had ever stayed together, they would have put up a few more championships. So anyway, uh, that's my pitch. Walton made the difference. Nobody could – there have been six men, including the great John Havlicek, and everybody, uh, but uh, not a six-man like Bill Walton and not, a, and not a duo like Walton and Bird. Yeah, I remember when you wrote about in Scribe how you mentioned the best series we never got was the 86 Celtics against the 87 Lakers. And obviously, even without bias in 87, the Celtics did return to the finals, but it was sort of a, I mean, just... Uh, oh, they needed another body so desperately. They had the body. And they but, were all banged uh, up and everything. But yeah, they, they didn't know. Yeah, they needed the body. They needed another body. Uh, the, the other thing, I, the line I like to quote myself in all the modesty, and I really believe this firmly, about this 85-86 Celtics as, as they roared down the stretch uh, was that they rendered meaningless the concept of the meaningless game. There was no such thing. Every night was a complete treasure for anyone who loved basketball. And uh, remember, they were 40-1 at home, and uh, it, was, uh, it was just – and then remember the back-to-back games, they ended up the Hawks series by game crushing five. them with a 36-6 third quarter. 36-6, let me repeat that, 36-6 third quarter against a good, very good Hawks team. And then the next game, first game of the Bucks series, they crushed them by 30. They had like a, I mean, it, I mean it, was a, it was just a tidal wave. They really were. If there was a signature game from that year, what would it be? Would it be that infamous third quarter against the Hawks? There was also that third game against Milwaukee, the first one back mm. in the Bucks, where Bird was just... Bird That's and a great just point. All over uh, the place. Obvious, yeah, no, those are two excellent uh, points. Uh, uh, team-wise, yeah, I think that that frightening uh, explosion against the Hawks because the Hawks were good, and uh, and that was something. And you're right. I always say if you want to see what Bird was all about, if you want to see what basketball is all about, get the get it get the tapes of the Buck series and and the cumulative performance of Bird. He had no game in which he had huge, humongous numbers, but he did everything a man can do to, to on the basketball floor, including play defense uh, and, and uh, the, the Buck series. And then, of course, the one game for Bird that would summarize him, uh, if you had to pick one of us in a glorious career, 
Game six in '86 is still my favorite uh, bird performance because I, it, there was it, it was absolutely everywhere. It was everywhere, uh, both ends of the floor, uh, including even got a jump ball against Elijah one, and, and uh, how he did that we don't know, but he did. And um, uh, you you would see, but you're you're very good to point out that Buck series because he did he put the cumulative effort in that. Everything he did was, was spectacular. Well, all you got to do is listen to Billy Cunningham on the CBS color commentary. He was like flabbergasted. I think the fourth game he just gave up and he made one comment like after Walton threw a dart in there or something, a bird, and bird had a layup. He was just like, the people of Boston are just spoiled watching this team move the basketball around. Uh, the I, passing of the team, the passing. When the minute Bird showed up in 79, they became a great passing team. I remember rhapsodizing about their passing when, with the back with Ford and, and, and Archibald backcourt, uh, and everybody was into the spirit of the whole thing. Larry put you into the spirit of the whole thing with his passing, and, and, and they were a phenomenal team, uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, but then we haven't discussed McHale, and, and, and that's the other thing I say when people talk about um, – matchups with great teams in history and and particularly that Bulls team any of those Bulls teams whether it's the Horace Grant or the or the Dennis Rodman power forward uh, doesn't matter uh I say okay fine you got that that who's guarding McHale and the answer is they never had anybody to guard do you think Rodman was going to guard McHale no he, he was not going to bother Kevin McHale Kevin McHale laughed at most double teams there's only one double team that Kevin McHale respected you know what it was Michael it Thompson was, there was there was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, and Magic, yeah, uh, that that double team. That's a double team. Kareem would guard him, and uh, maybe sometimes instead of uh, Robert, uh, but he would laugh over mo- at most double teams. To I me, mean, really, he just didn't even bother, didn't face him in the least. Yeah, that was the real travesty of McHale's foot injury in '87. He was absolutely oh, yeah. at his peak in '86, '87, wow. shooting like 65 percent from the field during both you know, seasons. And only, defensively, uh, that was what he's we. He's only 60, 80 guy. As far as, as far as I know. Yeah, defensively, you know. he was unbelievable then, too. And that's really what he lost with his foot injury. Was yeah, he could guard everybody from, from Adrian Dantley at 6'3 to Ralph Sampson at 7'4. Yeah, Dominique Wilkins and all that. Yep. How about today? You know, and it's fine. Yeah, Dominic. He when remember the matchups when they played the Hawks. It was it was fun because you know he guarded he guarded Wilkins and and uh, Larry guarded Tree because he didn't have to worry about him, and and uh, and Robert guarded Kevin Willis. The other side, uh, it was completely flipped around, and uh, because of that, but it was fun. That uh, that's a team that boy, uh, if, if you know if, this, if they win that shootout game, the Bird Dominic shootout game, and they win that series, I, I think it changes the horse course in the entire franchise. I've always speculated about that. I wonder whether the, the Atlanta Hawks franchise would have been completely different and, and, and gone on to something if, if they had won that game. But, you know, Larry took care of that. <laughs> Last year was their first appearance in a conference finals ever in their history. Yeah. It's, 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 I, feel, it's, yeah. I feel for them. How about yeah. there was this one, the one detracting things you can say about the 1986 Celtics, and it's interesting because Red even said it when he was discussing the 1967 Sixers, and he really used to rag on them by saying they were void of being discussed as one of the all-time great teams because they did not repeat like many of his his Russell teams did. Could you dock points against the 86 Celtics? I know they were banged up badly in 87, but could you dock points in that they didn't repeat like, say, the 72 and Bulls teams or that 87 Lakers team that Michael Thompson did? Because first of all, Walton played ten games, and Walton Walton started off the season hurt. He was not the same from the start. They went from having a bench that was Bill Walton, uh, Scott Wedman, and Jerry Seesting to having a bench that was Fred Roberts and Darren Day. So and Greg no. Kite. And Greg Kite. So 
No, no, it's not the same team. That's so. Not, it has nothing to do with anything. I mean, we're talking about individual teams. One team, one year, and 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 you know, you want to drop a list of the top ten or fifteen? I'd be happy to sit down and do it. Uh, and 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 some one season teams. That's all we're talking about here. That's like the eighty-two, eighty-three um, Sixers were a great team. Uh, that year, 65 and 17, Moses was an absolute marauder. He was so far and away the MVP of the league that year. Uh, they were a great team for one year. They were a pretty good team before and after, but they were great that year. Oh, I mean, and Celtics were great, 85, 86, 86, 87. It was, it was right. Kevin was Kevin got better. Now, Kevin, at first, he didn't, he didn't have a he – wasn't held under 20 until Carl uh, Malone did it to him uh, – I think in February, and was that. But then he got hurt. He got hurt in a fateful day when Larry Nance stepped on his foot, and Kevin played uh, from that point on. It was never the same. The rest of his career it was never the same. But until that point, it was he was relentlessly, uh, absolutely unstoppable. Uh, and so for them to get to the finals and 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 even take uh, go six games was a remarkable achievement, given how how thin they were and how overworked they were. Uh, you know, the, I mean, those guys had to play huge minutes, and because the bench just wasn't adequate. And they were still really one rebound away on that free throw from that series being completely different. Oh, well, I doubt, yeah, you're right. I, I doubt they probably win the series because they were so bad on the road that year. They still would have had to have won a 6-7 and seven in Los Angeles. And we do remember a Celtics team in recent history that lost a 6-7 and seven yep. in L.A. But, I mean, it still would have been tough. But it, I do want to talk about that other part that you discussed in Strive, obviously being the 86 Celtics against the 87 Lakers, the best series we never end up getting. One of the interesting things I think you could say about that 87 Lakers is when you look at their record after they picked up Michael Thompson at the trade deadline, and one of the things we all sort of forget, or not me forget, I had to end up researching it, but Lowry was incensed when the Lakers got Michael Thompson at the trade deadline that year for really just a rack of basketballs. And they just went on a tear to finish the season. I believe they beat the Celtics on a Sunday afternoon game on CBS in Thompson's first game. And then they started out that next season like 45-9 and nine before Magic Johnson had a big hamstring issue that sort of limited him the rest of the, rest of the way. And they kind of sputtered to the finish line. I believe they finished like 500 down the stretch. And then they really struggled in the playoffs that year. But they were still able to pull out a championship. To the best of sort of your knowledge, how would you sort of match up the – Call it the 86 Celtics against the second half of the season, 87 Lakers, and the first half of the 88 season Lakers pre-Magic Johnson injury when they, when they had Thompson for a, sort of like an 82-game stretch. As I said, I mean, I think that's just an extension. I said when I say the 86 Celtics versus the 87 Lakers, you just identified properly uh, how good they were going into the following season. That was and the difference that was clearly Michael Thompson and uh, gave them that fire. I can remember, here's a little backstory. Uh, the All-Star game um, that year, uh, I remember talking, we you know, not me, we were talking to Pat Riley, and uh, he was saying that uh, they're one player. He said, we're one player short right now, and uh, we need another player. And sure enough, uh, the following Friday, they make the deal for Michael Thompson. And you are 100% correct. The Celtics came roaring into L.A. on a big roll, uh, and, to the, and had a Sunday afternoon game in L.A. Uh, in which uh, they each had the same record, which I believe, if I'm off the top of my head, was like 37 and 12 or something like that. But they each had the same record, and, uh, or 40, whatever. It was a, and, and it was a huge game. Uh, and Thompson shows up and has not had a practice. Bill Burtka, the famous assistant coach, uh, put him through a little just walk-through thing. Here's a few of our drills, and here's a few of our plays. And, all that. and he went out, and I think he had something like 10 points and 10 rebounds, but he, he was a difference maker. But that game was a fantastic game. The Southerners came from way back, uh, 20th down, I think, and took the 
the lead, and we went back and forth in the fourth quarter, and a big play I could still see it coming right at me. Uh, magic goes coast to coast. Magic goes coast to coast. It does a spin, spinorama uh, for the finishing layup uh, on the break, and, uh, uh, and they win that game. Just NBA of the 80s at its finest. It was basketball fury and passion and, and, and everything that, you know, you, the NBA – dreams of being uh it was the highest level basketball i'll never forget that day uh but you're right in general terms here uh that the Lakers team extended it in the 88 because i covered that whole finals uh which was that dramatic finals when uh, isaiah got hurt and just had the 25 point third period and, and of course that awful call that put that, oh my god yeah you know we, i saw it again i watched the 30 for 30 on the bad boys and and when you see that play again and lambeer did nothing, nothing. Nothing. Zero. And Cunningham defended nothing. it. Nothing. <laughs> Cunningham defended it. Like, oh, there's the foul. I was like, oh, nothing. My. Oh. oh, God. They'll, they'll, take the, they'll all take that to their grave. They'll, they'll never get over that. that. That was so manifestly unfair. Well, they had another chance, and that's when James Worthy picked the time to have his first career triple-double in Game 7. That was as good as Worthy ever looked, I can tell you that. And I think even in that final play of that seventh game, I think one of the Pistons players got, like, hit by a fan. I know he was chucking a half-court shot or whatever, but, I mean, it was still – but, I mean, it is funny when you talk about the worst calls in NBA history. You don't really hear that one anymore in the past – I don't know, because I guess it was almost 30 years ago now. But that that is up – if it's not one, it's number two, possibly behind, obviously, the non-call with Paul Silas in the 76 finals with the technical foul. One last question, though – about the 86 Celtics is because one of the only concerns I had about them, if you, if you do sort of match them up against all-time teams, is I think I remember reading this possibly in Dan Shaughnessy's book, Evergreen, uh, when he was sort of writing the whole synopsis on the history of the franchise up until 1990, is he mentioned how the 86 Celtics, or even the Celtics of the mid-80s in general, seemed to struggle a little bit slightly against athletic teams, such as obviously when Portland came into the garden, they had the super sub off the bench, have a big game. But even then, I mean, they still, I mean, they had to go to Portland, I think a little later in the year. That was the, when Bird shot the left-handed or whatever. They did mm-hmm. seem obviously to not play, maybe at, a little more athletic teams could bother them in the sense. And that's why obviously losing bias was, I guess, really, I mean, just as time huge. went on, that was a much more pronounced thing the following year. Uh, I, I agree with you to a point. Um, they they did not uh, force turnovers uh, the way other you know younger athletic teams did. Uh, right, they, they were, there was there was that's that's true. But no, this, it just goes down to nobody was perfect. There's no perfect teams, but uh, they overcame most any issue that they with with their power. I mean, there was a zero something. You know, it was a plus minus deal. And uh, okay, maybe you may have an edge on athleticism, but and 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 uh, offensive rebounding became a a non-existent thing as as the years went on by '88 and '89. But um, and that that speaks a lot to uh, athleticism. There's no question. But um, that's that's a minor issue. But it's a, it, and if you have to resort to that to point out that they lost the only game they lost at home all year to an athletic young Trailblazers team, I can live with that. <laughs> Bob Ryan. Author of Scribe, available still at your local bookstores and obviously online as an audio book on Audible. And, of course, longtime columnist for the Boston Globe. Bob, thanks so much for stopping by once again. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Yes, do definitely appreciate the fact that you had a lot of fun coming on Celtics Beat yet again. Once again, Bob Ryan, columnist emeritus for the Boston Globe as well as ESPN commentator. 
We mentioned his book, as stated, Scribe, My Life in Sports. Plenty of discussion about the 1986 Celtics team in it, as well as a lot more for sure. As noted in the interview, still available at the usuals, your local bookstore, both in hardcover and paperback, including Audible and narrated by Bob Ryan himself. Remember, as a Celtics Beat loyal listener, you can grab Bob's audiobook for free by simply signing up for a free 30-day trial. Free 30-day trial because you are a listener to Celtics Beat. Audiblepodcast.com slash Celtics. Definitely get scribed at audiblepodcast.com slash Celtics. Great fun. Got no issue turning back the Wayback Machine to yonder. I get a lot of that from our listeners. I should talk about the old-time teams more. Got to talk about Reggie Lewis, LHR. Talk about the 91 team, the big three era, et cetera, et cetera. And hey, remember, I, I do. I have my book as well, Follow the Boston Celtics, where I speak to players, coaches, management, opposing players about the collapse of the Celtics in the post-Bird era. That is still available for free at clnsradio.com slash LHRbook. Again, free copy of Follow the Boston Celtics at clnsradio.com slash LHRbook. Where do we start? Bob touched upon everything there. Today's Celtics, yesterday's Celtics, the oversaturation of quote-unquote game presentation. I tell you, that started when Bob asked to be surveyed, like to be surveyed by the Celtics. Mr. Ryan, if you kept your season tickets over the years, they actually do survey you at least once a year. The Celtics, that is. In the 12 years I've had season tickets, the Celtics survey me at least once a year. Sometimes it feels like it's three. I may even be correct there. They do survey you. Unfortunately, they have little regard for yours or my opinion. We are fans. We are there. We appreciate the game. We download this podcast every single week. We go to all sorts of alternative websites to get our Celtics coverage. We have no issues spending the money, so while we love the Celtics, we do accept they are a business, and unfortunately, businesses in the 21st century do not have to have much regard for their most loyal consumers. I talked about this ad nauseum regarding the NFL on a recent episode of Unfiltered, so if you want to check me out, I am over at youtube.com slash CLNS radio. We hearken back to all we want about that, and that is the eradication of tradition, and we can talk about all we want about the banners of the, of the Celtics, the mystique, but anyone who goes to these games, they know that the true traditions and the uniqueness of the organization has been eradicated by mainstream interests. That's fact. This, this constant adhering towards gearing everything towards the lowest common denominator of society, as I said with Bob and that interview, and I even said the same thing back on an unfiltered regarding the NFL this past Tuesday, I believe. That's what really bothers me the most. I've talked about this with Randy Auerbach very frequently. Randy, of course, is Red's daughter, and she listens to this show weekly. We talk a lot. And this has upset her so much throughout the years, how little regard there is to the uniqueness of the organization, particularly in the present day. And it's so easy to see why that's hard on her. When the Celtics do things like, oh, geez, I don't know, trot out a dance team two days after she buries her father, or when the organization a few months later chooses to honor the first ever championship in Celtics history with a dog show jumping through hula hoops. Remember that? You actually probably don't because that was pretty damn low 
by anyone who had a hand in that. That has mercifully been covered up. But I remember it. I remember it very well. And I know surviving members of that 1957 Celtics team do remember being relegated to what they were, that dark April night in that 2007 season. You hear a lot in the media, this is a disgrace over absolute meaningless stuff, guys getting on their high horses. And that's just an excuse for people to get on said high horses. But that's not high pole there. That night when they were quote-unquote honoring the A57 Celtics, that night was a disgrace what the Celtics organization did that night. And no one with any semblance of decency should be amused by that racket or any other racket that you still see at games nowadays. And I definitely understand why Randy Auerbach, who relished the aura, Bob Ryan, same thing. Even me, I'm 29. I know all about the Celtics tradition. I hate how it has been taken out. I hate how it's been, and even more so, I hate how it's been taken out to appease, as I've stated, the now famous phrase here, lowest common denominators of society. That's the worst of all. It really does serve as a microcosm of the degradation of the American population who need these cheap forms of entertainment so they can get off mummy's sofa and haggle their parents for 50 bucks to go attend a game or get another 80 bucks out of them so they can go purchase one of those putrid trash bags the Celtics call their alternative jerseys. And you heard Bob Ryan in the interview when he said he'd love to do a little pop quiz on many of the people who attend games about what had happened in the game. And he's right. It really is a shame that there is a good portion of fans who just, not just Celtics games, but any sporting, any really way of entertainment. Let's just stick with Celtics games. It's really disappointing that there are people who cannot go to a game and actually understand what the hell is going on on the court. They need a giant flashy jumbotron to tell them when to chant defense, to tell them when to make noise. I mean, oh God, that's stupid noise on meter it used to always crack me up at uh, Mike Breen during the Garnett years when he do an ESPN game which was a lot back then and it was so obvious for anyone watching at home that the crowd noise was from that noise on meter like the ah and Green would sarcastically say on the broadcast well, we're back here a raucous crowd here in Boston and of course that's because they put one of those stupid noise meters up there on the jumbotron and then to the opposing team they always scored during that I mean Always in the, oh, it immediately shut up. Oh. But yes, Bob wants to know if it's a Celtics king. Can't figure the crowd out, particularly, you know, the Celtics fan base nowadays compared to what it was up until, I like to say, at least 1998-ish, even 2002-ish. It's much different from, from those years. It sucks, but it's reality. And the only thing to do, sadly, is to block it out. At least if you know why that's the case it's i don't want to say it's easier to accept it's just easier to dismiss and easier to get around with it you have to accept that it's never going to be the same not just for sports but really anywhere you'll never get those days back in celtics nation in america anywhere especially now when you watch the old games on nba tv or read bob's book and talk about the so-called classic era of sports the golden age and not just remember how great the teams were Or imagine what it was like back then, because I do think if you were to discuss a team's place in history or a player's place in history, you got to understand the culture in which they were around. Everything is thought of differently by the times. I certainly do put a lot more value on the opinions of a Bob Ryan. Like, I always laugh when when people rank. I saw a recent ranking on ESPN.com with a ranking on the positions or whatever, and I I laugh at this. I don't—Bill Russell— being behind Will Chamberlain nowadays, 
when Bill Russell himself was voted as the greatest player in NBA history in 1980. I just find that very interesting, how that changed over the course of the last 35 years between Russell and Chamberlain, as to why that is now flipped. Very interesting, considering the fact that you know neither of those guys have played one minute of NBA basketball since then, but somehow that's good enough to routinely rank Chamberlain ahead of Russell and to flip that around. But I I don't know, I just find that very funny how that works. The media can pretty much decide nowadays who's great, who's not so great, and what is awesome and what is not, and make those decisions for the population and force those beliefs on everyone. And the majority of society are in lockstep and take all that at face value. You see much also, too, with analytics and other forms of advanced data have pushed themselves into the mainstream. That's good since the turn of the century. It's good, but it's also bad. Bad because it further removes people from putting any critical thought, not that they really don't do that much anymore, but even more so now, it removes putting any critical thought into anything in life, even something as trivial as sports. You can log right onto Hollinger's all-time team rankings and say, oh, geez, so there it is. Oh, John Hollinger has the 1996 Chicago Bulls is the best ever. Off and away, that settles it, right? People more and more now are becoming so accommodated by the computer and having the computer to accommodate everything for them that we just do not critically think anymore. And sports, as I said previously, is a microcosm of that. But it's also good because said data can also expose lies too. And yes, once again, we will use sports as an example because this is Celtics beat and we can talk about sports and basketball on the show. And we'll use basketball as an example. TV for years, commercials, everything. They tell the world to worship the ground Kobe Bryant walks on. All hail Kobe. And there is not one shred of evidence, not one shred of data whatsoever that proves of his abilities that it is what television has told everybody over the course of the last 20 years. You can use all the basketball sabermetrics. I think they have the guy ranked at like 18th. I mean, something like that. I know that's not just so. It's again, that's something that's not set in stone. But when you're 18th, come on, there it is. But one, yes, once in a while on this show. We've done so now in the past few weeks to go alongside the Comcast series on the 1986 Celtics. I like to turn back the clock a little bit, and the 86 Celtics series on Comcast has definitely given us excuse and a good enough reason to do so because we know much of Celtics Nation is watching that and paying attention to it and commemorating the Celtics for this 30th anniversary season. Talked about that team and that series, which actually Bob is going to be on. Me and Bob discussed off-air. He hasn't been on that yet, but he will be on the coming episodes, which again air over at csnne.com slash 86celtics up until April 13th. Bob told me he was filmed for at least two and a half hours, so that is going to be a lot of fun there. Very interesting series. Very interesting to hear whatever Bob Ryan has to say, be it on this podcast or wherever he is in the globe. And of course, in the Celtics documentary coming up, such a great team, 86celtics. I am going to take the Homer route as well. I do think that was the best single-season team of all time. Definitely the most enjoyable team to watch of all time. And that is now not because we're going to take the Homer route. That's not because, duh, I'm a Celtics fan. Remember, I did not even experience that. But I've watched nearly every game from that season in full. The playoff games, regular season, the whole shebang. Just incredible as to how they played, the way they played, the way they moved the ball. I'm as big of a LeBron James fan as anyone. Okay, okay, well, not anyone, but as much as anybody should be, because no, I do not uh, fall flat on my face for him and just kiss his feet as a god, as many of society dregs do. But I've been one since the new decade to declare him as a top five to seven basketball player of all time. I think he's the best quick forward of all time, yes? Better than Larry. Many do not believe that. 
But I want to use a little comparison in terms of getting enjoyment out of watching a team or watching an individual player and watching the 1986 Boston Celtics compare well. The 1986 Boston Celtics were Renaissance art. They were the statue of David. They were the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. You were utterly mesmerized by everything they did. You need to understand the times, and you have to experience that for yourself, which I know that that documentary is doing to the best of their capacity. But you've got to go through everything thoroughly, and there's a point where you are just like, oh my God, this is absolutely breathtaking, what they were doing out on the court that year. That's the 1986 Celtics. LeBron and other great individual players throughout NBA history. I came to appreciate Michael Jordan, of course, over the years. Who hasn't? But for as great as they are, while the Celtics are Renaissance art, LeBron is pornography. Sure, it's very um, arousing. You watch your little video clips, usually alone, and gets immediate reactions out of you. It's addicting, but... Like the case with LeBron with porn, it, hey, it's, it's not for everyone, right? Uh, brief video clips, too. They do not do the 1986 justice, and neither does basketballreference.com. Although, as I mentioned with Bob, that third game against Milwaukee, you can get plenty out of YouTube with that. I believe it's up there if you do search for it. I talked about Billy Cunningham's reaction during the game in that interview with Bob, and I remember Billy Cunningham, he's a lifelong sixer. And was the time for some 20 years back in the 1980s. He was their coach the season prior, as well as throughout the early 1980s, a player. He got into a fight on the parquet floor with Red during a freaking preseason game not too long prior to when he was a CBS announcer calling that game in his first full year with CBS. So now he's doing color for CBS during the 86 season. So there's no love lost between him and the Celtics. And he's absolutely freaking losing his mind watching Bird. And the 86 Celtics just fire the ball all over the court, making the Bucks look like traffic cones in that game. So definitely. I mean, like, yes. Exactly. There we go. So the 1986 Celtics, they won 67 games. There were so many games that team just handed away as well. The Knicks game on Christmas, actually that was the game that really kind of kicked them in a gear when they blew that and they blew a 25-point lead, ended up losing in double overtime. They lost a lot of crap that year. I know late in the year there were some fluky games. There was one down in Philadelphia when Bird missed two free throws at the end, and then Dr. J made a turnaround 30-footer miracle off the bank, three-pointer at the butt. I mean, just a... Just junk. But they won that 67 and did so with ease and did so before the private jets. They were flying commercial. You think if they weren't playing as many back-to-backs as teams do now and doing – and the 86 Celtics were flying TWA and coach catching four in the morning flights in Atlanta. I mean, that's four to five more wins easily right there. I know that's what Chuck Bailey, the Pistons coach, said when the Pistons – they were the first team to use private aircrafts. He said that was at least four wins when they first initiated that, I believe, in the 1989 season. And then every team, I think, within a year had private jets. So I'd take that 86 Celtics team over them all. However, I definitely can listen to any arguments when it comes to the 1987 Lakers or even that 88 Lakers team when they were healthy. Obviously not with the way they finished that season. They really eked out a championship that year. They went 7 in the final three rounds, but that was because they had some players banged up, and there were also some other good teams. But that team, Lakers team with Michael Thompson, they're right there with the Celtics in 86. I'm with Bob. I think either of those teams 
takes down any of the Chicago Bulls teams, not just 96, but 92. That's another team that you hear a lot. Chicago was actually probably the deepest then, and Jordan was at his absolute peak in 1992. He was probably better in 92 than he was in 96. But it was a better league in the 80s. Remember, 96 was an expansion season in the NBA. I'll take the 86 Celtics in a sliver over the second half, 87, and first half, 88 Lakers, if you want to use our own imagination there. I know one of the listeners of our show, Kevin, is one of the guys who's gotten on to me a lot about why don't I talk about old-time teams. So I'm very happy, Kevin. I hope this prior 30-some minutes did you justice. So I'll give you a little favor. Here's a little shout-out. Fan of that 86 Celtics, Kevin has very popular alternative merchandise for that team that has been worn. The starters, those guys, Tass Mellis, Trey, all those guys, I believe they've worn some of his gear on NBA TV. Very trendy stuff. If you want to look at... The lineup shirts, you just go to Beast from the Northeast. Believe, Google it. It's there. There you go. Hope we made some people happy there. Do not break into the old-time talk too often on Celtic Speed here. I try to save that for summer months when there's the discussion about the present. is a little dried up when it's a little slow. And while it hasn't been slow for the Celtics, it's gotten a little stale. That's why, as I said, Bob, in the initial part of the interview, I Bob, I'm a little bored right now. But it, it, you know what? It's the January doldrums. Last few weeks, a good time to reminisce, mix this show up a bit. Next show, the Super Bowl bye week, our last show of January. And then you like to think you're going to get out of those midseason doldrums a bit. Trade discussion should really pick up real legitimate trade discussion. Good rumors with some good backing, good sourcing, not any fantasizing or DeMarcus Cousin fairy tales. There should be a little uh, different already. The names are being dangled. This audience knows in prior broadcasts of my interest over the summer in Greg Monroe. I really wanted the Celtics to pursue him. So here goes this. Dear Celtics management, if that man is available, please inquire. Love LHR. Very briefly, I think he could be exactly what Isaiah Thomas was last year in terms of picking him up. Very similar to how he was acquired in that. Remember, Monroe signed elsewhere for the Chiefs. The Celtics pursued Isaiah Thomas in the prior offseason before he signed with Phoenix. But Isaiah Thomas, he didn't really fit in with the Suns. And in this case, Greg Monroe, I guess, really is not fitting in in Milwaukee. But he's still having a very good season. I believe he's posting a 22 PER. So please definitely inquire and see if he can be poached for pennies on the dollar the same way Isaiah Thomas was. Greg would fill a need. These bigs are nowhere near his caliber, these bigs that are currently on the team. So get Greg Monroe here. Get rid of some of these mediocre dudes. Get someone who can play a little bit. Get Kelly Olenek off the bench where he's at his best and can kind of mix things up. Get Monroe in the starting lineup, and there you go. That's that's a team in my eyes. So hope we do see some movement there, but for now I won't say anything more than what I just said because I do want to see actual some legitimate interest and before we really start to delve serious conversation into acquiring this player or into acquiring that player. But listen, I would love to see Greg Monroe here over any of these guys. So I'm not going to discuss anything more than that because I do want to see some ample backing behind this type of trade discussion. And I also won't discuss anything more because we're out of time on this show. So there you go. So here are our shout-outs. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Will Rock and Steph Legrateau. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat. And you can like Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio on Facebook to keep up with the show. Also to check out ticket details on how you can win tickets to Celtics games coming up. Facebook.com slash Celtics Beat. Free Celtics tickets. Find out how you can enter at Facebook.com slash Celtics Beat. Love to thank our guest Bob Ryan of the Boston Globe. 
as well as our sponsors, American Farmers Network and Tick IQ, for making this all possible. For our staff writer, Eddie Santiago, program director, Nick Gelso, and myself, the executive producer and host of Celtics Beat, I am Larry H. Russell. See you next Sunday for another edition of Celtics Beat, powered by CLNS Radio.